0: We are kind of in between series right now. We finished in the know, and Pastor's going to be starting his series again next week, and so I'm kind of in between here. I would like to say uh, um, what a privilege it was. Uh, Our pastor went this weekend to preach at a pastor's conference, a a church planning conference, and as I watched on Friday night and watched how God used him amazingly in that service, I thought, what a privilege for us to be able to have the opportunity to say, we will give up our pastor for a weekend so he can go encourage pastors uh, who are planning churches. Isn't that wonderful? And so it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. What that means for you is you get me. <laughs> and uh, uh, years ago, it's probably going on five or six years ago, I started a series in the book of James. Now, the faithful uh, at Valley Bible Church remember that series, and, uh, and I just haven't had a week to go back to it in about two years. And so I always have a passage, or we're in a series, or whatnot. And so we're going to go back to that series of the book of James. And uh, I often joke that, uh, that we are on schedule. Uh, if you want to get the series as a packet, go to the bookstore, get on the, uh, on the interest list. Uh, we are on schedule for about June of 2018. It'll be available. And so uh, you can go in there and ask, and uh, they'll look at you cross-eyed. But it, it's coming. It's coming. And uh, so we'll be in there today. Uh, and going back to James. How many of you have ever heard of the Literary Digest? Literary Digest. Anybody? Nobody in the first service either. Yeah. Literary Digest, about 100 years ago, was known as the the company that had the most accurate polling uh, 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 institution around in America. Uh, They had predicted accurately, they nailed the 1920 presidential election, they nailed the 1924, 1928, and 1932 presidential elections. One of the elections, they not only nailed who would win the, the presidency, they also nailed the percentage points by which they would win. And then 1936 comes along, and this time they uh, polled 2.4 million people. 2.4 million. Now you got to understand, that is a larger sample size than you anything you've ever seen on Fox or CNN. Whenever you see a poll, it's between two to 5,000 people. They polled 2.4 million people. To, to try to predict what would happen in 1936 when Republican candidate Governor Alfred uh, Landon uh, was facing a presidential incumbent, Franklin Roosevelt. Now, they had predicted that Roosevelt would lose by a landslide. And it wasn't a crazy prediction because they'd just gone through the Great Depression. And so if you're at the helm during the Great Depression, you can see why people go, you're the problem, get out of here, Right. And so they had predicted that that Roosevelt would lose, and they pulled 2.4 million people to find that information. However, what happened was Landon ended up getting only eight electoral votes, tying the lowest of all time. He didn't even come close to winning. And Roosevelt won. And so they asked the question, what went wrong? And they begin to look back at these people they polled and and try to figure out how did they get, they polled 2.4 million people. How did they get this wrong? Well, they got their people that they would poll from three different places. The first one is if they subscribe to the Literary Digest. The second one was if they owned a car. And the third one was if they owned a phone and used it. A public list that you can get that says these are people that have a phone. It's a phone list. And then they would use those pieces of information to figure out Based on those presumptions, who do we think is going to win? The problem with that is, if you are living in the Great Depression and you own a car, uh, you're rich. You're doing really well. If you're living in the Great Depression and you have a phone and can use it, it's a higher economic place. If you are living in the Depression and you have the ability to have a magazine subscription every month, you're doing well off. And they found that all they pulled was the rich. And so they picked the 2.4 of the most richest people in the country and they pulled them. And they were wrong. Presumptions that lead to error. Then there's other kind of presumptions. Uh, Steve Jobs from Apple, he makes this presumption that this, this big machine that fits in hundreds of square feet of office space would, would, would one day be in every American household. And he made this other one that, 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 that Americans would, if you had this a device that you could store music on. That instead of stealing the music and getting it for free on Napster, that they would then begin to buy it from him. And he was right. So somehow, you, sometimes you get these presumptions that fail, and then sometimes you get presumptions that just change the world. When is presuming right and when is it wrong? And really what we're looking at today is, what does God think about presumptuous thinking? What does God think about being presumptuous? What does God think about presumptions? Today we're going to see two things. First, we're going to define the heart of presumption and look at what we should do in reference to it. We'll we'll, we'll ask, what does a presumptive heart look like? And then we'll ask, what does God expect me to do in relation to it? Why is my heart presumptive and, and what does God think about that? And for that, we'll be in the book of James. Would you open up your Bible to the book of James? If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew right in front of you. You can open up the first or second page. There's a little index there. that will tell you what page to go on. We're in the book of James. Very small book, only five chapters long. And we'll be in chapter four in James. We'd love for you to follow along. James chapter four. We'll start at verse 13. The first thing we're going to look at is the heart behind presumption. The heart behind presumption. Where is my heart when I'm being presumptive? When I'm engaging in presumptive thinking, where is my heart? The heart behind presumption. James chapter 4, 13 says this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this and that city. Spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The heart behind presumption. It's the idea of making future plans without dependence upon God. Making future plans disregarding God. Making future plans with God not being in the picture. He says, come, you who listen to this. Attend to this, you who say. Come, you who say. And then he gives four uh, verbs, four future tense verbs, and they're all in the uh, written in the first person. You know what that means? They're all verbs in the future about me. All right, all verbs in the future about me. Here's what I'm going to go do. I'll do this. I'll do that. I will. I will. I will. Whatever is good for me, I'm going to do. I call them egotistical futures. Egotistical future verbs. The, the, he's, he's focusing on this idea. You make plans on what you're going to do because it benefits you. It's all about you. Egotistical futures. Put that in your mind. We're going to come back to that later in the sermon. It is the aim of every successful businessman. There's money. And there's the goal of money. Which leads you to the goal of more money. And, and, and there's the goal of more money. And then, and then it leads you to another girl. Even more money. And so we go, and we go, and we strive, and it's full of selfish ambition. We're being self-assertive in, in our plans to get rich. We're driven, driven by the almighty dollar to where someone could say, you worship that dollar. Amen. It is an indictment on the American dream. My mother came here from another country. Why? Because of the promise of an American dream. It's being so, self, so self-focused and desiring for yourself what I can achieve, what I can achieve for me, and keeping God out of the picture and disregarding Him. It's egotistical future planning when tomorrow isn't promised. Go back to verse 14. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You have no idea what will happen tomorrow. All plans are tentative, Plans are not our own. Time is not our own. Life is not our own. We are not in control. We're not in control. All plans are tentative. Now, I just want to stop here for a second. Is God saying that we shouldn't plan? Man, maybe I should throw away my 401k or my 403b. Man, I was planning to go to Cabo in 2014. Ooh, better throw that out the window. I, is God saying that? Is that what he's saying? It cannot be what he's saying because uh, there's too many scriptures and Proverbs and, and Psalms that talk about planning. And so he does want us to plan, but he wants us to submit our plans before him. So we submit our plans before him and then he blesses us. We keep Him in the picture. We don't disregard him. We don't presume on him. Since you don't know the future, don't, don't think to yourself that you control it. You should assume to yourself that I don't control it, and I submit to God for the future. It's why Jesus would say in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and, and, and being given to marriage. Up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be, the coming of the Son of Man. And so you ask yourself, what is wrong with drinking and eating and marrying and being given to marriage? Nothing. We do that today. You will eat today. You will drink today. Many of you are married. Some of you are getting married. I'm doing a marriage this, next month. Hey, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but what they were doing is they were living life and had nothing about God. God was not in the picture. They were living life as if God had not existed. They are presuming on him, thinking they were in control, and God says, No, no, no. I, I don't work that way. When I start getting disregarded, I get upset. I start getting selfish for my glory. When people think they're in control, wait a second, you're robbing me of my glory. I'm in control. And so he says, even at the end of Daniel's 70th week, when God makes all the promises he made to Israel come true in the last days, even then, there'll be many who will be surprised at his coming because they are presuming on him. And he will hate presumptive living even then. Living a life that says there's no room for God. And James is saying, don't presume on him. He bookends your life. Don't presume on God. He bookends your life. 14b. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You are a mist, a vapor, a puff of steam. You guys ever seen like a little bit of mist or a little bit of vapor? or You see, you see it for like a second and then it just disappears? You ever notice that? You, you, maybe you turn on the faucet and you put it on hot, you can see a little steam and it's gone. You see for like one second, it rises an inch and it's gone. It just like vanishes into thin air. You know what he's saying? Your life is short and you are not in control of how short it is. He is. And it's arrogant of you to assume that it will be there tomorrow. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is what? Evil. It is the heart behind presumption. It is the heart behind presumptive thinking. It is arrogance, and it's sinful, and it's wrong. And why? Because it disregards God. When we begin to live this life as if God isn't even in the picture, And God says, oh, no, 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 once I get disregarded, that's when I start moving in. I want to show you a picture of that. I I want to take us to another passage where Jesus kind of tells a story about this person who is presumptuous about life and what happens to them. Will you follow me? Go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. The book of Luke chapter 12. I want you all to go there and see this. Jesus actually talks this very subject about being presumptuous. Luke chapter 12, we'll start at verse 13. Luke chapter 12, 13 says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me to be a judge or an arbiter between you? And he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. That little sentence right there is so convicting, I'm going to say it like three more times. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Oh, there it is again. Eat, drink, and be merry. But in verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. With anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. So you have this story. You have this, uh, maybe a younger brother. We, we can assume maybe that, that Jesus is walking along and this younger brother, maybe, maybe it's not that bad of a situation. Maybe he's, he's thinking, my brother, like he, he's the older brother and he gets two portions of the inheritance anyway and I'm the younger brother and he's holding my inheritance from me. He's holding me hostage. Jesus, tell him to share the inheritance. It's rightfully mine. And Jesus says, I'm not going to get involved in that. There's authorities that deal with that. There's people, there's there's avenues to get that figured out. That's not for me. But, you know, I will use this as an opportunity because I see something in your heart right there. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And the idea behind the greed there is is the thirst for more. I get this, and then I'm thirsty for more. And then I get that, and then I'm thirsty for more more it's almost like an addictive cycle like like a success 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 addiction or a financial addiction i need more he says be careful about that that thirst and desire for more and then he gives a little story he says there was a man and 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 he had like an amazing year of crops and and the idea is he got more crops than he's gotten before as a farmer he's looking at all these crops going where am i going to put them And instead of saying to himself, God has blessed me with these crops, I wonder what God would like me to do with the crops. Maybe he's blessed me so I can bless someone else. Instead of doing that, what he says is, I know what I'll do. I'll burn down my barn, build a bigger one so I can get all the extra crops in there too. And I'll fill up that barn full of extra crops. And then I'll talk to myself. And literally the idea is, I'll speak to my soul. Soul, look what we've done. We've got plenty of things for many years. We can take life easy now. It actually says that. We can take life easy, soul. We can eat, drink, and be merry. I've got it all figured out. I'm completely independent, I am completely in control. And God is disregarded. And that's when he swoops into action. It's amazing. You remember the, 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 the uh, e- egotistical future verbs? Look in verse 17 of this passage. How do I know when I'm being presumptive? How do I know if the love of money is conquering me? How do I know those things? I'll tell you how. The me's, my's, and I start creeping in. The me's, my's, and I's. Okay, go to verse 17 here, and let's just read it. Try to count with me how many me's, my's, and I's we have. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place for my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. Twelve times. Twelve times. Twelve times in the original we see eight eyes and four my's. How do I know when I'm being presumptive? When it's all about me. When it starts becoming when it starts becoming it's e- egotistically minded. When God isn't in the picture anymore, it's just about my goals. Have the, here's, my, here's my life on earth, and these are the goals I have for myself. And and God is not involved. I'm in control, I'm completely independent. I depend on no one. I just depend on me. And God says, really? What happens when I call in all the options of your life? Who's in control then? God hates a heart of presumption. He hates it when we begin to presume on him. When we start saying we're in control and really he's in control. When we presume on who he is. He hates it. And he feels the same way about procrastination. Let's look at the second point. The heart behind procrastination. Now, what does my heart look like when I'm procrastinating? When, when, I, when I'm dealing with procrastination, where is my heart? The heart behind procrastination. Go to verse 17. This is back in, in James chapter 4. Go to verse 17. You can fl- flip there real quick. It says this. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, what? Sins. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Anyone who procrastinates, sins. It's the sin of omission. Uh, There are sins of commission, sins that I commit, uh, things that God has said that I know I should be doing, and I do the opposite. Don't do this, and I do it. That is a sin of commission. I commit that sin. Then there's sins of omission. Over here, these are the ones where I know I should be doing it, but I just refuse to do it. The the Word of God says I should be doing these things, and I just refuse to take part in those things. I am sinning. uh, I'm omitting doing that. It's a sin of omission. There's a higher calling. It's not only about the things that I do that are wrong. It's about the things that I don't do that I should be doing that are right and so there's it's, it's it's okay i'm gonna take it a step further now in the book of romans it, it said that if you think that you, that some let's say this activity right here is you think it's wrong let's say there's nothing immoral about it maybe you're a new believer maybe you're a weak christian and this activity right here you believe that it is wrong and you do it then it's sin to you it's sin because you thought it was against god and you did it anyway and so it's still sin because there's a higher calling and so there's sins of commission and sins of omission. When I know I should do something and I'm not doing it, I'm in sin. I know I should do it, and I failed to do it, even though I know I should. It's sin. And he's probably not just talking about this section. He's probably talking about the whole book of James. It probably is applicable to the whole Bible. And James is saying, hey, I've told you to stand in the midst of the trial in chapter 1. Do it. I I told you to love your brothers without showing favoritism in chapter two. I told you to control your tongue in chapter two. I told you to listen to his word and do it. All those things, don't procrastinate on these things because to him who knows what to do and he doesn't do it, it's sin. What things are you miserable not doing right now? What things in your life do you know you should be doing but you're not doing it and you're miserable? And you know why you're miserable? Because God puts his spirit inside of you and he's there to make you miserable. If you know Jesus Christ and you can live a life apart from him and not be miserable, I'm, I'm sorry. There's something wrong. Because the spirit of God makes you miserable. So what things are going on in your life right now that you're not doing, that you should be doing, that are making you miserable? It is the heart of procrastination. And according to verse 17, it is sin. It is putting off for tomorrow what you should do today. Today. And it's amazing how the heart of presumption and the heart of procrastination can work together. It's amazing how the heart of presumption and the heart of procrastination can work together. Let me see if I can illustrate how they work together. Okay? You know, I worked with youth for about 15 years, whether it's at Valley Bible Church or whether it was in some churches in LA. I've worked with youth for a long time. When you have that sample size, you see kids from 12 years old all the way to 27. So you see junior high, high school college, pre-engagement, engagement, young marriage, children. You see the whole gamut. And I'm starting started to see a certain pattern. It's happened more than one time, several times, a certain pattern of what would go on. And, and, and usually it's a, it's a student around 22, 23, something like that. They come back around. They know I love them because I love them since they were little kids. whether it's a boy or a girl, doesn't matter. Both sides. I saw both sides. And they come and say, Big Dave, I, uh, I know those times when we were kids in junior high and high school, God felt so real to me, but I'm not so sure anymore. I, I, I'm doubting my faith. I'm doubting that it was ever real. In the first, I'm doubting whether I'm a Christian or not. Now, I've been to this rodeo before, so I, I strategically answered. I said, now, are you sure that you're just not feeling so guilty because of everything else you're doing on the weekends and you're so miserable about everything that you're doing that you're hoping you'll come in here and tell me that you're not a Christian and then all of a sudden it'll feel better what you're doing on the weekends? Because I've kind of seen this pattern five or ten or twenty-five times. I'm just letting you know sometimes people can use this as an excuse. Are you sure? And it's amazing. This, this conversation always starts like this. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. I'm obviously living in sin. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. and, and uh, But I know that well, I'll come back I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, but I'm going to come back. What is that all about? How can you can be, come back to something that you never were? Well, I, I feel like when I settle down and I do get married and I have kids, I'm going to want to raise them in the church, and, I, and I'll be back. I think I'll be back. I'm not a Christian, but I'll be back. And I've always answered this way. I've always said, you know, and we'll be here when you come back. And we'll accept you. And I won't look down on you. And I'll love you the same as I did when you were 12 years old. And we'll help you. And then I always say this. I just hope the scars aren't too deep. You see, we'll help you wherever you're at. When you come back, we'll help you. I just hope the scars aren't too deep. I just hope that, that, see, you see, God has everything at his disposal. He can do whatever he wants. And so when you get back and and, and you're living through the consequences of your sin, some of which last your whole life, I just hope they're not too deep. Oh, What do you mean? Oh, I mean when, when you come back and, and you got a pregnant. When you come back and you assumed an addiction. Or when you got that disease. We'll love you. We'll care for you. And we'll, 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 we'll be there for you. But I just hope the scars aren't too deep. When you come back and you are pregnant. And you don't know who the dad is. Or when you come back and you had an abortion. And you have to live with the regret now. Oh, we'll love you. And we'll accept you. And we will be there for you. But I just hope the scars aren't too deep. Because some of those things have consequences for the rest of your life. So we'll be there, and we'll love you. And then as I was studying this, I thought to myself, you know, I need to add something more to that. I'm not done with that. Something else needs to be added, and it's this. Who says there's a tomorrow anyway? (laughs) Who says that God is going to allow you to be out there for 10 years and then allow you back? Who says that's going to happen? You presume on God, and then you presume on his kindness, and then you procrastinate as if he doesn't have the keys to your life and your death. In 1 Corinthians, he took people home because they took the Lord's Supper the wrong way. He put them to sleep, and he's not talking about a nap. He's physical death. In Acts, he, he took Ananias and Sapphira's life because they lied to him, that's all. They lied to him, and he took them home. He can take you home. Who says that you'll be around to come back? You presume on his kindness, and then you procrastinate based on it. And God is saying, oh, you're not in control. I'm the sovereign God. I'm in control. I decide. And today your life could be required of you. Your life is but a vapor. What is the big idea? What's wrong with presuming upon tomorrow? What is wrong with presuming upon tomorrow? It shows an arrogant heart, assuming that you are in control when in fact you are not. What is wrong with presuming upon tomorrow? It shows an arrogant heart, assuming that you are in control when you are not. And God will not be disregarded. He will not be disregarded. He hates it when he's presumed upon. He will let you know that he is God. It's like playing mercy with God. You ever play mercy when you're a kid? And, and you get your hands, and they would go like this, and you'd fight with each other, and then, so, oh, I hurt so bad. Oh, finally mercy, I give up. It's like playing mercy with God. Now let me tell you something. God never loses at that game. Eventually, you will say mercy, and I give up. Well, what's the solution to the problem? Go to verse 15. I skipped it conveniently. Look at verse 15. James chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What does future planning look like that glorifies God? It's, it's, it's the idea of recognizing that God is the one who blesses, he gives, and he takes away. It's keeping God in the picture. It's acknowledging him as a source of your future, whether that's physically, whether that's monetarily. It's all his. Everything I have is his. It's recognizing that he's the one in control of you and not you. It's recognizing and acknowledging that your dependence upon God and not independence of him. It's using this phrase, if God wills, but not not using it as an abracadabra so I can get what I want. It's really meaning it and and, and really desiring it and, and having it be a heart attitude in your life. A life's goal. So how are you doing on being presumptuous? How are you doing on procrastinating? Are you living life as if God is in control of your life or are you in control of it? Are you far off and you need to return but you've been procrastinating? Do you wonder if you fall victim to the love of money? How do I know? How do I know if I, if, if I really love money too much? Not a simple test. Do you find any joy in giving? See, giving is outside of yourself. It's, a, it's outside of the me, mys, and I's. Do you know the Bible tells us we should have joy in giving? If you can't have joy in giving, then you're probably living for yourself. Do you support this gospel ministry, Valley Bible Church? Make a conscious commitment, a monthly commitment to God's church. When Malcolm comes up and, 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 he, and he starts talking about this organization that helps ladies in, in the hardest part of their lives, where they're most humiliated, there's something inside of you. God, if you just would bless. One day I want to give to that organization. And many others like it, if you just would Bless. I want it to be me. Does that come in your heart? Or do you give out a reluctance? You know, you may be here today and you may be checking us out and you're saying to yourself, man, I never considered my life to be a life that's living, presuming upon God. I never even thought about that, that God's in control of everything and I'm presuming upon God thinking that I'm in control. And if that's you, we would love to introduce you So a God who had said he would send his son to die on behalf of sinners like you and me, and he would exchange your sin for righteousness. We'd love to introduce you to that God. And from this day forward, you could live a life that doesn't presume on God. I challenge you to come forward afterwards. Come see me. Come see one of our elders. We'd love to introduce you to that. What is wrong with presuming upon tomorrow? It shows an arrogant heart assuming that you are in control when in fact you are not. What is wrong with presuming upon tomorrow? It shows that you have an arrogant heart assuming that you are in control when you in fact are not. In 1912, a famous ship called the Titanic set sail for the first time. Left Liverpool, England for its maiden voyage. A lot of pop and circumstance about this ship. One of the biggest ships in the world, if not the biggest. A lot to be said, a lot written about how uh, it is indestructible. A lot to be said about its structural integrity. The owner of the, sh- of the ship is, 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 said, is known to be said that not even God can sink that ship. And then it sank with 1,500 people on board. Don't sink in your own presumption and procrastination. Turn to God. Father, found myself praying this morning something I hardly ever pray something as simple as thank you for another day you've been so faithful to me everything I have is yours and I don't want to presume on you or expect anything from you I'm completely dependent upon you would you please help our church to keep you first, to never presume upon you, to never procrastinate in the things that we know we should be doing, and to glorify you in every area of our lives.